0: good morning it is Monday the 21st of September I keep repeating that because I find it kind of astonishing um and I don't know I don't if have you completely lost track of time because I feel like you know days merge into weeks now and weeks seem to have merged into months and yesterday it was April and today it's September 21st and so in case you didn't know it's Monday and uh, it's time to get moving on a new week all right, let me ask this question as the lead off for this hour. Why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? Was Jesus crucified because uh, he was guilty of the crime of heresy according to the Jews? Was he crucified because he was deemed guilty of Sedition, you know, claiming to be a king in the face of the Roman Empire? Well, yes and yes and no. Jesus was ultimately crucified as the pinnacle event, the climax of all of redemptive history by God's will and design. And so... When we start having conversations about religion and heresy and politics and sedition and Jesus and the unfolding will of God, and this being the day the Lord has made and we being the people whom God has deigned to live within it, citizens not only of the kingdom of heaven, but also citizens of a particular nation state in a particular time. 2020 in the United States of America we cannot help but have conversations where our faith influences our political discourse and the question really is which which is really driving or drafting the plow in the conversations of the day is politics the draft horse in your conversations or are you yoked in submission to Christ and really allowing him to plow the political conversation in which you are engaged? I think, I think that is the question that Caitlin Scheiss is seeking to have us ask and to which she is asking us to pursue an answer in her new book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Which one of the horses... Is, is the draft horse in the conversations that you're having today related to politics, is, uh, is it a political driving animal? Or are you yoked to Christ and submission to him and allowing really who he is to plow the conversations of the day, till the soil of the culture in which we live, plant the seed of the word of God, sow peace among our neighbors, really all for their benefit. All right. These are the conversations we're about to have with Caitlin Scheiss, author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Caitlin Scheiss is with us. She is a staff writer at Christ and Pop Culture. Her writings have been featured in Christianity Today, Relevant, and Fathom magazine. Uh, She is currently a student at Dallas Theological Seminary pursuing a Master of Theology. Caitlin, welcome to Mornings with
2: Carmen. It's so great to be here.
0: Okay, so there there are a thousand things I really want to talk with you about. Um, And so we're (laughs) going to try to keep our conversation focused today on the book. The Liturgy of Politics, but um, but like I'd, I'd like to talk with you about the Emmys. I mean, you know, but we're not going to. Okay, so I'm going to stay focused on the book, but I know that your ability to talk about things that are happening in the culture um, is really uh, deep and wide as well. So um, thank you for all of the things that you write in so many places. I, I, for one, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor— um, this comes a little bit for—this this conversation is going to come for a lot of people out of nowhere. <laughs> they are not going to have thought mm-hmm. about any of this in this way. So um, make your case. Make, make your case um, that we have really allowed politics to drive us spiritually instead of allowing who we are in Christ to drive our politics.
2: Yeah, well, it really comes down to how much we've underestimated the power of politics to shape not just our opinions, our preferences, the way we vote, but also really fundamentally how we love. And so the book really starts off with a couple of examples, but the heart of it is we have kind of rushed into politics with our theology in hand and thought, We could poke and prod, you know, this monster, and we would be unaffected. And instead, the way politics works is really, it really understands how humans work and draws on people's hearts, their affections, their loyalties, their desires. And so when you enter into this sphere, when you engage with, you know, media, conversations with people, when you go to rallies or protests, it's not just information cognitively that you're taking in. You're really learning a a formative story about the world that will, you know, try and capture your affections and your loyalties. And so we as Christians have really powerful resources to combat that. But far too often, we underestimate the power of our political engagement and don't come in. Sufficiently prepared. So,
0: in the middle of that, you said um, formative story about the world. Mm-hmm. I thought, in the postmodern mind, I thought for postmodern people. You know, there is no formative story about the world. We have cast aside the idea of a meta narrative. And really, what you're pointing to is there is a reality that we buy into a meta narrative, whether we admit it or not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the times, the reason that it's so uh, difficult for people to realize this is happening is because it's not presented uh, the way that we tend to think. You know, if you go to church and we're going to talk about worldviews, for example, people will sit down, there's a worksheet, and it says, here's a list of different worldviews, here's all the things they hold. And that's not usually how people kind of form their worldview or even how they're aware of it. It's given to them in images and in emotions, in relationships. And so it's kind of humming underneath the surface of other things. If you asked the average person to kind of tell you what the story of the world is that they're captivated by, they probably would deny that they had one. Or even they would, even for Christians, they would write down, you know, here's a list of things I believe. And yet that isn't always actually the story that's shaping the way that they actually act out in the world. They might say, you know, the gospel is foundational. I live in the world to to serve the kingdom of God and to serve others for the sake of God's glory. And then there are political forces, things like a desire to be physically safe, a desire to protect your country above, of all other countries, a desire to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, that those stories end up motivating how people act, even if the answer they would give to a question about worldview doesn't match up with that.
0: So um, I had an experience—I've actually had this now several times in my life—with older, very mature Christians, people who have committed a lot of their time, talent, and and wealth to, you know, the advocacy of evangelical Christian causes um, and then they have had children and or grandchildren who have answered god 's call to the mission field, the foreign mission field mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they have been laid out by that. they have been yeah. like you know it 's not safe i don 't want my children there i don 't want my grandchildren born there. The safety is a concern um absolutely and the and the frankly sort of um acceptable version of the prosperity gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really is a much stronger driver for them than I am going to give up all of the conveniences and comforts of this life and actually go seek out people to serve who are far less fortunate or far less privileged than I am. I'm going to use the privilege of having been born in the United States of America into this wealthy evangelical family, and I'm going to move somewhere else, and I'm going to share the Mm -hmm. gospel. And that undoes them. That undoes their their parents and grandparents. And I think that's the kind of thing you're pointing to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's harder, I think, for people— to see that in themselves than in other people precisely because it doesn't come up until the rubber meets the road and there really is a moment where they have to see what has been forming them and i think for that story of safety what tends to happen usually is that people have been reading their bibles they've been listening to sermons but they've also been consuming a you know a diet of media and social media and you know participating in politics where the main story was The goal for your life is to be physically safe and and prosperous. And so that was more formative than they gave credit to. And just, you know, some Sunday school classes and some sermons, which are great, didn't have the formative power to fight against those other forces that were drawing on their emotions and directing their love.
0: Absolutely. All right, Caitlin, um, Caitlin and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're talking about her new book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation, for the sake of our neighbor, I am going to ask her to define some terms here in just a moment. Um, and I'm also going to, to really ask, you know, what what does this whole idea of spiritual formation in a political direction really mean? I have books available. If you're interested in a copy, text the word book to 877-933-2484, and we'll be right back. We make a miracle walking, promise keeper, in the darkness. Continue my conversation with Caitlin Scheiss. She's the author of The Liturgy of Politics. The book begins by looking at the intersection of Christianity and politics in America over the past half century, and then moves into a conversation about how faith shapes politics and how politics shapes faith. And I would describe it as a conversation about the chicken and the egg. So now, Caitlin, could you tell us how you envision the church engaging in what you call political education, the spiritual formation in a political direction.
2: Say in the book a few times that I would love for people to have a Sunday school curriculum or to have a sermon series. I think those are absolutely wonderful things, and there are some great options out there, and there are great ways to contextualize it to your to your particular church. But more than that, the heart of the book is, you know, those forms of education try and shape our minds. And too often the problem with our political engagement is that it's shaping our hearts and our loves. And so the book has a couple of chapters on things like spiritual disciplines, corporate worship, the sacraments, um, and tries to kind of describe those in a way that's faithful to how Christians have practiced them throughout history and globally, and also show how those practices are intended to form us not just internally, in fact, probably not even primarily internally, but primarily in the way that we interact in the world. And so then makes a few different arguments in different ways about how all of those different practices should be shaping us both in the life in the world, and then specifically in the way we engage politically, and then really just asks the question, if they aren't working the way they've been intended to work in Scripture and throughout history, then how can we make some changes to make them more fruitful? And I don't try and be particularly prescriptive. I think churches in different contexts should make their own decisions. But just to kind of poke and prod a little bit and say, how could we better uh, take advantage of these practices that God gave us for a reason, because they're intended to shape our hearts, not just our minds?
0: All right. So one of the things you're really, uh, I think, encouraging us to do is pay attention to the stories that shape our lives. How do Mm -hmm. I even begin to identify those?
2: Yeah, it is really hard. That's that's part of the difficulty. Um, I actually have a list of questions that I keep near my computer. That's most of the kind of media that I take in every day as social media or news that I get on my laptop. And so I have this list of questions that says, you know, what am I being asked to love? Who am I being asked to fear or hate? What kind of story am I being asked to uh, support or to dream? What kind of good life is being described here? And just pausing for a moment as you're taking media in and asking those kinds of questions, it doesn't mean that you don't maybe agree with the policy that's being proposed or you don't vote for the candidate who made the ad. But it does help you separate out what information am I gaining in my mind about policies, and then how is my heart being tugged at? What is it trying to, you know, be forced to love? And when it doesn't line up with Scripture, now I'm at least aware of it, and so I can respond appropriately.
0: If um, and let me just say again, hey, I have books uh, to give away. University has graciously supplied us with some copies of *The Liturgy of Politics*, *Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbors*. Um, let me just say, if you, if you are fatigued at how the conversations about politics and faith are taking place, and you know there is a better way, this is a book that's going to help you explore that personally. It's also going to help you explore that um, with others. Like, it, it is—this is a really good companion for the current journey that Christians are on in the United States of America— we can't I mean we're in the thick of it or the heat of it mm. in terms of this political season. Um and this is just I, I just it's a it's a good companion. Every single chapter um is an invitation to examine um our own liturgy, our own practices and and those of our local church, as well as um an invitation to move forward in a more positive way, um, with actual mm. concrete examples of how to do it. It's super duper um, practical. Sometimes, um, you know, we talk about books and they're a little ethereal. This one is not. Uh, Caitlin gets right to it. Um, I particularly like uh, chapter five, a story to live into scripture and political formation. I think that is, um, you know, gosh, for a lot of people really where it the, the rubber meets the road. Caitlin, mm. um, talk with us about um, the rhythm of life. Talk Mm. with us, because I loved Chapter 7 as well, because I do think that a lot of us feel like just as if we're just living in discord. It's just a shrieking mess out there, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not a shrieking mess that I can avoid. So let's talk a little bit about the rhythm of life and how I steward it um, uh, as a Christian in, in sort of this conversation that we're trying to have that does absolutely include politics
2: yeah so far too often it's not just chaotic it's that the rhythms of our life are determined by things outside of the church and outside of the way that God has given us to live so an election season is a great example of that right Now we have you know markers in the media that we 're consuming and the conversations we're having that tell us, okay we're entering this new season, and life is all about this and those kinds of markers are how god's people traditionally throughout history and around the world have had a rhythm to their own life, seasons and times, things that mark the passing of time in ways that give meaning to it and point us back to God. And so we have the ability to draw on historic Christian practices, to think about, you know, the different seasons, whatever we're in, we're in ordinary time now, we're waiting uh, for a period of Advent, those types of things that help reorder our lives. So they're not just back and forth shaken by the, the, the seasons of the world, the calendar of the world, but are shaped by the calendar of the people of God. And that's also how spiritual disciplines are supposed to work. So if we're just sort of at the mercy of whatever's happening in our life, whether it's happening around us in our family, our community, whatever political issues are going on, we are better able to engage in that kind of chaos if we first have things that order our life. So disciplines that focus us on God, disciplines that focus us on our neighbors, especially the most vulnerable. So things like prayer that remind us that we are not fully in control, but that also draw us to needs that are not our own. Things like hospitality that force us to have relationships with people who are different in a way that's reciprocal but also allows us to, to serve and to give and so those chapters have a lot of examples of how spiritual disciplines are not primarily intended to shape us internally but to give us a rhythm for our life so that we're not just at the mercy of whatever's happening around us. We actually can engage from a place where we are making change. We're not just constantly being affected by those stories, but we're taking the story that we learn in Scripture that might just be in our heads and living it out in the world in a way where people see our lives and they're not just seeing a list of doctrine. They're, saying what it, they're seeing what it looks like when people love the story of Scripture, love the kingdom of God, and are acting that out in their spiritual disciplines, but then also the way those spiritual disciplines form us to serve our communities practically. All right. Um, there are
0: practices and prayers that you would encourage us to engage in during this election season. Would you like to offer a prayer for this election season in closing this conversation today?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Lord, I pray for your people, uh, especially in this country, but all around the world, God, that we would be formed more by your story, by a desire for your kingdom than by a desire for any earthly kingdom. I pray that we would recognize our own biases and prejudices in a desire to serve the most vulnerable. And God, I pray that you would work in us through your Holy Spirit to not just vote the right way, but to vote with the most vulnerable in mind and then to live lives that testify to that inside the voting booth and outside the voting booth. And God, I pray as we engage politically that you would allow us to be agents of change in our communities and not those who are changed by our political participation um, that we would be representatives of you on earth seeking change seeking the peace and prosperity of the cities to which you have brought us
0: caitlin Shise, thank you so much if you guys want more of it i've got books to give away text the word book to 877 2484 the book is the liturgy of politics Spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. What a joy. We'll be right back. All right, we have uh, not had an opportunity to talk to David Aikman for a couple of weeks, and so we have a lot of international headlines to cover. We're going to lead off with the historic Abraham Accords. We're also going to talk about U.S. election interference and what's going on with COVID in Europe. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
3: My name is Bond, James
0: Bond. Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. David, welcome back.
3: Thank you, Carmen. Very nice to be on the program again.
0: Okay, so I would love to hear your reaction to the signing of the Abraham Accords between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain. Um, what I, I just want to hear your, your response and reaction, because you're a person who has paid closer attention um, to history over the course of the last 50 years than, than most. So give us, uh, give us your view of, of what happened.
3: Well, I think it's a major step forward in Israel's relations we have Arab world, because the last time we had a real major opening up of relations with, between Israel and any Arab countries it was 1994 with Jordan, and before that, 1987, you had the relations with Egypt. And then things really got pretty quiet although there were unofficial relations between Israel and, for example, Oman and various other countries. There was sort of stuff going on behind the scenes. But this peace agreement is a major step forward. For one thing, it basically defends the complaint of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or Palestinian Authority, that they have the sole arbitration of what Israel can and cannot do with Arab states. This peace treaty has been denounced by, uh, uh, or, or the Arab League has been denounced by the Palestinian Authority. But I think the Palestinians I'm going to have to come to terms with it, because probably after, um, after the United Emir- Emirates and Bahrain, we're going to see Sudan, and then quite probably in due course, Saudi Arabia itself. So these are the crown jewels of the Arab world as far as Israel goes.
0: It is. um, It is a stunning development. I feel as if uh, if there were a person of a different political party in the White House, much would be made of this. um, And instead, uh, not much is being made of this in terms of uh, mainstream media. But I think that for those of us who, you know, who are students of history and recognize just how fragile the situation of Israel has been, just how dangerous a neighborhood it lives in it is just nothing short of remarkable that israel would begin to normalize relations with some of her arab neighbors and that the united states of america would have had the privilege of playing a role in uh, in bringing about those peace accords and so uh, david thank you for uh, for helping us see the abraham accords uh, in perspective and certainly with you we look forward to additional arab nations possibly sudan possibly saudi arabia Um, And and the signing of further accords with those countries um, and, you know, hopefully the U.S. being able to to host those as well. Talk with us a little bit about U.S. election interference. It's not just Russia, but um, but they are a problem. Talk with us uh, about what you see in terms of efforts of those around the globe to disrupt the U.S. electoral uh, and election process in 2020
3: the intelligence services complain that Russia is being particularly uh, obnoxious and troublesome in this current election that President Trump makes the point that the Chinese have a far larger ongoing campaign to interfere with various American elections including presidential elections and I think, both of these countries, Russia and China, are going to do everything they possibly can to make sure that, uh, or to try to make sure that somebody favorable to what they consider their interests are gets into the White House and occupies the Senate. So we're going to see a lot more of this in the remaining 40 days before the election actually takes place.
0: Forty days is kind of a special number in the Bible. It's interesting that we are um, just we're just approaching that. And um, we just wow, I just think we need to just be sober about how really short a period of time that is and how critical a point we are in in the United States of America. Um, let's be, let's. those of you who are listening right now and are in the U.S., let's be, you know, let's be guarding the process and let's be guarding our own social media in terms of uh, the things that we pass along to others. Let's be sure that we're verifying that what we're passing along is actually true and not produced in some troll farm somewhere halfway around the world uh, with an effort to disrupt our process. Um, David, talk with us about the spike in COVID cases in Europe.
3: This is a very serious development. Uh, Many of the countries in Europe, in the EU, began to relax their restrictions, their quarantine, and so forth in the, the late summer. But there's been a real upsurge of infection, of COVID infection, in Spain and France. And, of course, one of the issues is that there's what some people call COVID fatigue. People are so fed up with uh, having to stay indoors and not meet with other people or go to restaurants that they, particularly young people, are basically saying, well, we don't care about these restrictions anymore. We're going to go out and enjoy ourselves as we used to. And in Ireland, for example, it's become very serious the pubs and restaurants are closing down in Dublin. Nobody is able to travel in and out. It's a very serious situation. And in the UK, there are talk is talk by the government of possibly uh, an an additional lockdown on the whole country. If if the UK is not able to control the ongoing spike in infections of the virus that began a few days ago. So it's really quite a serious
0: situation. All right, David Aikman and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some developments related to Brexit that everyone is going to be interested in. And then we're going to take up the issue of China before the end of the hour. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is Max Locato. When life grows dark and stormy, does God notice? The answer in the life-giving miracles of the Gospel of John is a resounding yes. Do you believe in a Jesus who has not only a power but a passionate love for the weak and wounded of the world? Do you think he cares enough to find you in the lonely waiting rooms, the rehab centers, and the convalescent homes of life? You and I long for someone who will meet us in the midst of life's messes. If this is your desire, take a good look at the words of John and the miracles of Christ and see if they don't achieve their desired goal, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20 in verse 31. Remember, friends, you are never alone. This is Max. Locado.
0: Continuing my conversation now with David Aikman. We're surveying the international headlines of the day and we're settling in now for a conversation about Brexit. David, I'm hoping you can explain to us this, um, uh, this legislation that, um, that some are alleging, you know, like breaks international law. This internal market bill, I think, is what we're talking about. And it's the relationship right. of Britain to the EU. Apparently, there are, you know, bank closures or closures of accounts uh, involved in this already. Um, talk with us about what is going on.
3: Well, uh, a few months ago, Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, said to much claim that he'd sold the divorce issue with the European Union, that Britain would be able to leave at the end of uh, 2021, and it would be possible to have a new agreement on trade between the EU and the UK. But the recent bill uh, is basically an attempt to override that agreement that was signed off. As an international treaty by both the UK and the EU, on the grounds that if Britain doesn't act to change some of the provisions that it had previously agreed to, then the UK internal market may be overridden by regulations of the EU. For example, the Northern Irish component of the UK. It's under different regulations from the whole of the UK and is going to be on far greater control because the EU is concerned that goods from the UK to Northern Ireland may be uh, able to go south across the, uh, the border with the Irish Republic and thus enter EU territory without the necessary uh, restrictions and regulations. And so the EU is very concerned about this, um, a a sort of backdoor for the UK to uh, trade with the EU without an agreement. And so they are very concerned that this bill in the British Parliament to override the agreement previously signed between the two sides, may be overridden and you've had no fewer than five former British prime Ministers saying that if this bill comes into law, it's got to go through a second reading in the House of Commons and then through a reading with the House of Lords. It could seriously damage Britain's credibility as a diplomatic player on the world stage. There's quite a serious issue at stake here.
0: Yeah, and it seems as if um, the ongoing members of the EU are having a very hard time getting together in the proposed uh, conference that uh, French President Macron has been calling for now for you know more than a year. Um, interesting, just to note that the just the leadership challenges that. Uh, those nations are facing and trying to figure out how to even talk with one another about a future that doesn't include um, Britain. It's just a very interesting uh, set of challenges. Um, David, I don't want to run out of time before we talk about China. Lots of news related to China, particularly on the human rights front. Where, Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the EU because we
3: left off with the EU. The EU um, Commission uh, President Ursula von der Leyen has said that the EU is going to introduce its own equivalent of a Magnitsky Act, which basically penalizes Russian individuals who have broken international trading law or have acted in a very Uh, discriminatory and illegal way towards foreign companies. And so, if the EU does come up with a law similar to the Magnitsky Act, then it's going to be harder for China to do trade with the EU in a whole number of areas. And that's a significant uptick in the tension between China and the West as a whole.
0: So um, I'm going to read you a headline that neither one of us uh, would have seen because it was just posted 19 minutes ago by CNN. Some 40 Chinese warplanes have breached the Taiwan Strait Meridian Line, uh, and the Taiwan president is calling it a threat of force. Maybe uh, remind us um, what the relationship is between China and Taiwan and why um, this would be, wow, uh, if, if in fact happening... Um, and if those warplanes don't turn back, what is this? Um, what might this signal?
3: Well, China has been standing pat on its claim that the island of Taiwan is part of Chinese national sovereignty and therefore owes allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan since 1979. When the U.S. established relations with the People's Republic, has been protected by uh, an American law called the Taiwan Relations Act, which guarantees that the United States will provide defensive equipment to China as long as the purpose is entirely for self defense and it's not intended for any. Aggressive actions towards China. Now, China has been sending its aircraft not only across the Taiwan Strait, so breaching the meridian line between Taiwan and China, but it's been sending its bombers and fighters on sweeps around the entire island. And Taiwan has had to scramble its airports several times to basically cause the People's Liberation Army Air Force to stop doing this. It's really quite a serious development. And sooner or later, the United States is probably going to have to decide whether it wants to back the Chinese by having its own forces in the area or whether it will just keep hands off. So it needs
0: to be very carefully looked at over the next few months. Uh, For those of you who um, are interested in praying the news, there is all kinds of news related to China that we want you to be um, aware of today, Um, even as the United States Navy and the Chinese military are engaged in live fire um, all kinds of live fire missile drills in uh, in Southeast Asia. It's just a it, it's just a time during which we're all demonstrating our ability to engage in war. And I think that for those of us who are Christians, we need to be praying that um, no mistakes would be made, there would be no cause for anyone to assume the worst, of our neighbors around the world, and yet we uh, obviously need to be living in a state of total readiness because it certainly feels like more than saber-rattling in some cases. The economic challenges that United States-based companies are going to face is increasing. If you're not watching um, that conversation, that's important as well. Um, David, that's all the time that we have today. Uh, Thank you, as always, for joining us and surveying the international headline news. I know that with us, you are continuing to pray for the Uyghur people um, in the Xinjiang yeah. province of China against whom um, the Chinese government has finally admitted that, yes, in fact, um, their uh, their population is declining, but the government is denying any responsibility for that. So we're going to be praying on that front. Thank you, our friend. Thank you, my friend.
3: Thank you, Tom. Have a wonderful
0: week. You too. Blessings. We'll be right back. I just want to encourage you today to spend some time focusing on your own spiritual practices. Spend some time in prayer today. Not in partisan prayer, but in prayer that just simply seeks the holiness of God. Just seek the holiness of God today. Seek His face. Ask God to reveal Himself to you in ways that you have yet to comprehend or apprehend. Just say, just, just the hem of your robe today, God. Just, just let me witness just the hem of your robe. Invite me into your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit because of the access given to me in Christ. I have no righteousness of my own, but I joyfully receive the righteousness imputed to me in Christ Jesus, your son, upon whose sacrifice I depend and to whose glory I even now raise my hands and press my life.